The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by HubSpot. Imagine growing a business with high-quality leads, fast-closing deals, and wildly happy customers. It's not a miracle. It's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today. Sacramento, 1988. Dr. Ken Kaiser has an inspiration. He's the head of California's Department of Health Services, and he's just come up with a simple slogan to persuade people to eat a healthier diet. Five a day, five a day. We all know that's the healthy way. Fruits and vegetables, they're okay. A healthy way is five a day. Kaiser convinces California farmers to help him start a publicity campaign encouraging people to eat five servings of fruits and vegetables every day. He calls it Five a Day for Better Health. The National Cancer Institute gets on board and hundreds of corporate sponsors follow. Then the World Health Organization takes the campaign global. Okay, good afternoon, everyone. My name's Sarah, and I'm a research assistant at the British Nutrition Foundation. And today I'm going to talk to you about fruit and vegetables and five a day. The campaign just keeps going. After 15 years, the National Cancer Institute boasts that Five a Day is the biggest public-private partnership for health and nutrition in America. By now, millions of us know exactly what we should be doing, except we're not doing it. At the start of the campaign, about one in 10 Americans is eating those five daily servings. 10 years later, pretty much the same. The five-a-day campaign did just what Dr. Kaiser hoped it would, up to a point. It raised awareness of a major health problem, and it offered people a simple, easy-to-remember solution. But three decades later, it's clear that awareness isn't enough. Turns out, to change your behavior, you have to change your habits. That's not always easy, but there is a science to it. And according to psychologist Wendy Wood, that science might just save your life. From Wondery, I'm Rufus Griscom, and this is The Next Big Idea. I founded The Next Big Idea Club with Malcolm Gladwell, Susan Cain, Daniel Pink, and Adam Grant to connect people to some of the boldest thinking shaping our culture and our future. Each week on the podcast, we bring you one idea with the power to change the way you see the world. This week, breaking bad habits and making good ones. I think it's safe to say we all have bad habits we love to break. In my case, it has to do with a weakness for medium-rare burgers and bourbon on the rocks. And I'm pretty sure we'd all like to establish a few new habits, like eating those five daily servings of fruits and vegetables, or in my case, flossing on a regular basis. I just can't do it. If you're like me, you've tried for a while and then given up and chalked it up to a lack of willpower. Dr. Wendy Wood says willpower isn't the point. She should know. She teaches psychology and business and runs a behavioral research lab at the University of Southern California. And she's just written a book called Good Habits, Bad Habits, The Science of Making Positive Changes That Stick. Wood isn't just another self-help author. She's widely considered to be the most important researcher in her field. 
next Big Idea Club curator Adam Grant is a psychologist too, and a professor at the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania. And not just any professor, he's been Wharton's top-rated teacher for seven straight years, and Thinkers 50 ranks him as one of the world's 10 most influential management thinkers. Adam's written four best-selling books on topics ranging from nonconformists to how we succeed by interacting with others. He talked to Wendy Wood about the science behind our habits and how we can tap into our unconscious minds to make the changes we want in our lives. Wendy Wood, welcome to The Next Big Idea. So excited to have you on the show. Oh, it's really my pleasure. I, I've known you for a long time as the world's leading expert on habits. Why did you write a book about them? The research in this area has been moving so fast, and we've learned so much in the last, oh, decade about how habits work, how they function, how we can best change them. And I wasn't seeing it on the bookshelves. So there's an awful lot in the science literature about it. I read it all the time. You might read it sometimes. But it just wasn't being shared with the public. And that's what I wanted to do in writing this book, to explain to people how habits work. It's not something you can intuit. We understand so much about ourselves, but our habits are not something that we can observe and understand in the same way as other parts of ourselves. So can you, can you walk me through a little bit the, the science of habits, and, and in particular, um, the idea that maybe willpower is not all it's cracked up to be if I want to form or break a habit? Yes. My graduate research was all in attitudes and attitude change, and I studied that for quite a while, how people make decisions, how we form attitudes, how we change our attitudes. And it became clear after a few years that I was only studying part of the change process. So I was studying what we do initially, our conscious sort of thinking selves, what we're aware of in our own behavior and decision-making. But there's a huge piece about how people then persist that wasn't part of this process and wasn't part of what social psychologists were studying at the time. And that's when I became interested in habit, understanding that our brains are not just a single unified whole. We have a sense of ourselves and who we are, and that's part of our decision-making, conscious, aware selves. But there's other neural circuitry that help us persist and maintain that gets involved when we repeat a behavior over and over in a stable context and get a reward for it. When you get a reward, your brain releases the neurotransmitter dopamine, and that works for a very brief time to connect together what's currently in memory, where you are, what you did, in order to get that reward. And ultimately, If you repeat the same behavior over and over, what happens is you learn these shortcuts, these sort of mental shortcuts or habits. What's the best thing to do in this context to get that same reward you got in the past? So habits are what help people persist. And that's very different from consciousness, willpower, decision-making, 
And because we only know the conscious part of ourselves, we think that willpower is how we persist. (laughs) But some of the work that's been done in the past couple of years has shown that even people who have high levels of willpower, these people are not exerting willpower as they go around living their very successful lives. Instead, what they do is they form habits to automate the good behavior. Mm-hmm. So it's sort of like what, what I'm sure you do as a successful writer yourself. You have times when you write or places when you write, and you sort of structure it into your day. So the question of whether you're going to write is it, it never arises. Of course, we all have good writing days and bad writing days, and that takes more conscious thought and deliberation. But the actual getting there and making yourself write, you've automated that. That's part of your habit. All successful authors have some writing habit. They write a maybe a certain number of words a day or a certain number of pages, certain amount of time. We have to do this if we're going to repeat behavior successfully. How do I know, Wendy, if a habit is good or bad for me? Because I think, you know, most of the habits that I assume are good are habits that I enjoy uh, or, you know, that I'm, I'm happy I didn't have to think about. And the bad habits are the ones generally that feel unpleasant. But sometimes the consequences of a habit are not the same as, you know, kind of the experience of, of executing the habit. And so do you have a way of, of teasing them apart and maybe any examples that jump to mind? Yeah, I think that we are much more aware of our bad habits than our good habits. So our good habits are what we would do anyway. And even if we didn't have the habit, they're things that we would make a decision to do. So we're not so aware with our good habits of the habit mechanism as with our bad habits. Our bad habits tend to roll off whether we want them to or not, and so we become a little bit more aware of them. In addition, though, the way I define good and bad habits is simply whether a particular behavior is consistent with your current goals. Mm-hmm. So say you're at work today, and you don't have time to I go am. get lunch. keep going. Okay. <laughs> sure, you're very busy, you're at work, no time. So you go to the vending machine, and you get yourself a pack of those donuts, those mini donuts, and you eat them, and it works for you today because you're no longer quite so hungry. You didn't have to leave work. You were able to make all your meetings, and it's a great stopgap. So that's a, that's a good decision today. You do that a few times, and you start sort of noticing that uh, it has health consequences. You might gain a little weight. Um, you might feel kind of sluggish after that sugar high has gone. It isn't really consistent with your health goals. So what started off as an okay behavior as a one-off thing then becomes something that is really not a good habit to maintain because it's not beneficial for your health. So that's how behaviors that you actually enjoyed or worked for you can become a habit that over time isn't particularly good for you. And that's where the challenge sets in because that's the point at which you're 
in a situation, it's crunch time, you, you have to go to your next meeting, you're hungry, what are you going to do? Well, what comes to mind is vending machine donuts. So habits come to mind very quickly once they become that shortcut. They're activated by the cues around us. And they typically come to mind faster than any decision you could make, which is why they're kind of sneaky, <laughs> because they're there before you have made a decision to do something better. And if you have time, you can always stop yourself and say, no, I'm not going to do it this time. But that takes energy and it takes thought. Okay, so let's um, let's talk then about uh, what a habit is and is not. So you've talked about how it's unconscious or subconscious. What's the difference between a habit and an addiction? Mm. So I think habits are part of addictions. Habits are sort of the behavioral program that underlies an addiction. But there's so much more that go along with addictions, right? So there's a lot of thoughtful drug-seeking and um, creative decision-making, how to get the drugs, how to keep using. So habit is part of it, but it's not all of it with addiction. The part of addictions that are habits, that's the behavioral thing that you have practiced over and over again. And that behavioral program that goes along with addiction is cued by the environments around us, just like our habits are. There's a, a strong sort of a physiological component as well that goes along with the addictive substance. But, but the behavioral program is, is very much just habit-driven and habit-based. I think it's partly why... So many of these treatments that people go to where they take you out of your everyday context and sort of dry you out or give you a chance to stop using an addictive substance, it's the reason why these programs often don't work is you learn not to use in a different context than the one you typically live in. And then you go back to everyday life once you've stopped using, but all those cues are still there. And they keep bringing drug use to mind. And it's hard to, to stop again when you go back. So I think that's partly why addictions are tough to control through those sort of programs. As we've all learned the hard way, it's not just addictions that are tough to control. The same is true for all sorts of bad habits. If our brains are the horse and we're the rider, it often feels like the horse is running away and we're being dragged by the stirrup. That's because so much of our behavior is buried deep in the neural circuitry that Wendy Wood studies in her lab. But she says there are ways to consciously influence our unconscious minds. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. 
a promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. The five-a-day campaign is just one example of how governments and other institutions try to change the behaviors of millions of people at once. Think of campaigns to stop us from littering or wasting water or texting while we drive. Some of these have been extremely effective. Others, not so much. Psychologist Wendy Wood says there are good reasons why some campaigns work while others fail. So let's uh, let's break down some examples of attempted habit change that didn't work and try to figure out what's what's been done wrong. Okay. Uh, can you talk us a, talk to us a little bit about the five a day campaign? Yeah, it was a it was a good good initiative, and it's so interesting that when the program started, very low percentage, about eight percent of the U.S. population knew that they should be eating five servings of fruits and vegetables a day. And five years later, the program had been very successful. And the program consisted of a lot of information about fruits and vegetables. As a school kid, you were taken on tours of the supermarket. Fruits and vegetables had stickers on them, all ways of educating the public about eating more fruit and vegetables. And about five years after the program started, over a third of the U.S. population knew that they should be eating five servings a day. So that's a tremendously successful program. But the problem was that it changed people's beliefs. It educated all of us, but it didn't change our behavior. At the beginning of the program, about 11% of the U.S. population was actually eating five servings of fruits and vegetables a day. And 10 years later, it was still 11%. And since then, even though more and more of us have become aware, this is what we should be doing, the actual numbers of people eating five servings a day have decreased. And that's a great example of how what we know doesn't always translate into what we do, at least when it's a habit. Because eating is really habitual, right? We tend to do it at the same times. We tend to eat the same things. We um, tend to eat in the same places. And we formed habits around purchasing food as well. So at the beginning of the program, people probably went down their usual couple of aisles in the grocery store, maybe not anywhere near the produce section. And after the program had been on for a few years, they were still going down those same few aisles. It just didn't shift what we were doing. Hmm. And so often in health settings, we think educating people is enough. And it is for some kinds of things when we're making one-off decisions, when we're trying to decide something new for ourselves. But when we're repeating behavior over and over, that habit tends to persist, even when our knowledge changes. Because of those somewhat separate systems, neural systems that I was talking about, where there's persistence neural circuitry, and then there's the decision-making systems that are somewhat separate. They're connected, but they can function separately. And so if you were going to redesign the campaign, what would you change? I would 
make fruits and vegetables available to people in places where they typically shopped for other more packaged food. If you travel much, you go to other countries, and you see that in these convenience stores, there's fresh fruit and vegetables available, much less of the sort of packaged sweet cake cookie stuff. And if it's accessible, you're just much more likely to eat it. I recently moved to a place that has a farmer's market close by. And I find myself walking through there on my way home from the office some days. And I just start buying things without actually having made a decision to do so. But because it's there, it's easier. And, and in experiments, we've seen the same thing, right? If you have a bowl of apple slices right in front of you and a bowl of buttered popcorn, where you have to just, you can see it, smell it, but you just have to reach a little. Or the reverse. You have the buttered popcorn right in front of you, and the apple slices, where you just have to reach for them. When the popcorn's close by, people eat three times as many calories as when the apple slices are close by. <laughs> we're, we're really very sensitive to proximity in ways that doesn't make sense to our rational decision-making selves, but it tends to direct what we do and so what habits we form. It, it actually reminds me of when, uh, when I lived in northern England and I went grocery shopping in what was about, well, to me it was the size of a convenience store, there it was a grocery store. And the, the fresh fruit and vegetables were where we would normally have the candy in the U.S. Mm -hmm. And I went looking for cereal. And finally, I found in a very remote corner of the store uh, a little section that was labeled disgustingly sugared American cereals. <laughs> and I, I, I immediately felt like a bad person for even wanting to buy them. So I, I think that's a, that's a good example of, of taking away the contextual cue. Exactly. And probably the having to search for them would be enough to dissuade most people. So this tells us something about you, Adam, that you stuck with it. <laughs> Maybe more than you wanted to know. <laughs> yeah, I, re I really wanted the sugared cereals. Uh, so on the flip side, what about successful campaigns? So, you know, car seats have been adopted. Seatbelts are now a habit, which they didn't used to be. Uh, people, a lot of people have broken their smoking habits. Uh, how, have, uh, how have those habit changes worked? What can we learn from those success cases? Yeah, there are a number of really impressive success cases. And um, the anti-smoking campaign is probably the, um, the, it's the one we all know the most about. So in the 60s and the 70s, uh, almost half of the U.S. population smoked. And we started to learn in the mid-60s that it was actually bad for us. We learned that it cause cancer, is associated with all kinds of heart disease. So the Surgeon General released a report in the mid-60s saying that smoking was bad for us. Reader's Digest had an article, everyone read Reader's Digest back then. They had an article entitled Cancer by the Carton. We were being educated about cigarettes and their harm, but 
people's behavior didn't change that much until we started putting friction on smoking. So friction, as you know, Kurt Lewin was a famous psychologist who believed that you could think of psychological forces, the ones that influence our behavior, very similar to physical forces in the environment like gravity or friction. And he argued that our behavior is influenced by driving forces and resisting friction-inducing forces. The anti-smoking campaigns set friction on our behavior, set resisting forces, making it difficult for us to smoke, by taxing cigarettes. So they became expensive. Then we set bans in public places so people couldn't smoke easily in the workplace or in restaurants or in bars. And finally, we actually took them off the shelves in the grocery store because there needs to be somebody checking your age. So you can't just pick them up and stick them in your shopping basket anymore. You actually have to go ask someone and describe what it is you're looking for. Um, all of those things added friction. And at that point, smoking rates fell. Right now, they're about 15% in the U.S., only 15% of us smoke, which is an incredible success story, I think. Um, and clearly, smoking rates are higher in some parts of the country. The parts that used to um, be the primary tobacco-growing areas, maybe some parts of the South, rural poorer areas, but overall, it's been tremendously successful. So when you're trying to break a bad habit, you, you want to put friction on it or remove cues, right? Those are the two things you can do. If there's something specific you want to stop doing, those are two good ways to do it. A third way is you can form a good habit that competes with the bad habit that you have the specific thing you're doing. So if you have a pattern of going home at night, sitting on the sofa, and you decide that's what you're going to change, then you have a habit you want to change, a specific one, which is not just start exercising. It's I want to quit sitting on my sofa at night. Then you want to change the cues to that, and you want to make it more difficult for yourself to do that. Maybe get a dog that wants to go walking with you in the evening. And so you can't sit on the sofa as easily. Or maybe you have a friend who wants to work out with you in the evening. And so you start doing that. Those would be ways of starting to form a good habit that competes with your old one. I have a friend who, when he wants to go in the, to the gym the next morning, uh, he sleeps in his gym clothes the night before. Uh, where, where does that fit into this whole puzzle? That's great. He's making it easier for himself. He's removing some of the friction. You get up. You don't feel like going to the gym. You're in your pajamas. You're making it hard on yourself. You get up. You don't feel like going to the gym. You're in your gym clothes. It's much easier to just put your shoes on and go out the door. You've also written about how it's helpful to give yourself a reward 
to reinforce the habit. So what, what would that look like? That's useful in starting a new habit. It doesn't matter that much if you are trying to change an old one. And that's because our habits are cued automatically. As I said, they're what comes to mind first. And so they're already in your mind. And whether you want the reward or not is not what's most salient. Instead, it's the behavior. And it's usually just easier to act on whatever is in mind than to shift and think, oh, do I really want this now? So let me give you an example of that phenomenon. I, along with a colleague of mine, David Neal, did a study in a local movie theater where we gave people popcorn. Some people got stale popcorn. Others got fresh popcorn. And no one knew that there was stale popcorn being handed out. We asked people, and everyone could say they hated the stale popcorn. They liked the fresh. But if they had habits to eat popcorn in the movie cinema, they ate the same amount, regardless of whether it was fresh or stale. It's not the reward of the popcorn, the taste, the crunchiness, that's driving that behavior. It's being in the movie cinema and having something in your hand like you did in the past. So changing the reward doesn't work for changing a bad habit. It's not an efficient way to do it. Adding rewards, though, are ways we form new habits because that's when you add the reward, that's when you get the dopamine release that starts tying together the information you have in memory. So adding rewards helps build new habits. It's a logical idea. We're going to repeat things we enjoy much more than things we don't. So you're just much more likely to form a habit for something you enjoy doing than for something that you don't. So you're creating friction to help break your bad habit, and you're creating rewards and positive cues to give a new one a boost. So far, so good. And then you break down and have that second donut. You drive instead of bike to work. You bring your cell phone to the dinner table. Did all that effort just evaporate? Don't worry, Wendy Wood's lab has looked into that too. And they found that falling off the wagon might not be as dangerous as you think. From the minds of visionaries to the desks of disruptors, I'm Lars Schmidt, host of the Redefining Work podcast. Join me each week as we explore the new world of work through the lens of those shaping it. CEOs, HR leaders, investors, and more. Be a part of the conversation that changes everything. Subscribe to Redefining Work today. Stanford University, late 1960s. A young psychologist named Walter Michel is studying self-regulation. Why can some people resist temptation while others can't? How does willpower work? Michel isn't just a psychologist. He's also the father of three small girls. So he designs an experiment. So there's this marshmallow test as it's now known. The subjects are four-year-old children. He offers each of them a treat. It's actually... Uh, much of the work has been with Oreo cookies, not with marshmallows. 
sometimes with M&M's, sometimes with pretzels or uh, mints or chips. Michelle tells the child, you can have your treat now if you like, but wait 15 minutes and you'll get two. Then he leaves the room. It turns out three quarters of the kids can't wait the 15 minutes. Most don't make it to 10. What the media have focused on is that there are some interesting correlations that emerge when you look at this over time. Interesting is an understatement. Michelle followed some of his subjects for years, and the kids who waited for two marshmallows end up doing better. At a lot of things. Test scores, grades, careers, even health. Michelle's marshmallow test will go on to become one of the most famous experiments in the history of psychology. Okay, so here's the deal. There's a marshmallow. You can either wait, and I'll bring you back another one, so you can have two, or you can eat it now. Today, parents still do the test with their kids. Preschool teachers try it with students. Because the experiment doesn't just test the children's ability to delay gratification, it also seems to predict their future success. Or, if you wait and you don't eat it, when I come back, I'll give you a second marshmallow. But, for psychologist Wendy Wood, there's another lesson we can learn from the marshmallow test. Maybe an even more important one, as she explains to Adam Grant. It's a fascinating set of studies, and the data are just really interesting. They don't always hold, we have learned, with lower income, more diverse samples than Michelle was dealing with. But they hold enough so that a lot of us believed that willpower early on in life predicted all kinds of success. What isn't highlighted is that Michel had a second condition in many of his studies. And that is, instead of sticking the marshmallow right in front of the kid, so the kid had to look at it, smell it, taste it while they were waiting, he would put it under something. So the kid could still eat it if they wanted to. They could lift up the lid and grab the marshmallow. But it was hidden from sight. They knew it was there. They saw it placed there. But it was just a a lid put over it. And many more kids were able to resist eating it the whole time. But also, at that point, whether you resisted or not didn't predict much of anything later in life. Because so many more people resisted. It was like that became the norm. And this is just, it's, this is the logic of friction. You make things a little more difficult. And to our rational thinking selves, fine, I can still eat it and I will. But to our actual behavior, it changes everything. What's easily accessible is what we do. What is less easily accessible becomes let something less likely. And, and there's a modern-day version of this that was done with cell phones. Um, bear with me here. It's <laughs> of course. A, it's a bit of a story. We all know that our cell phones are being monitored constantly in all kinds of different ways. But this analysis was how far people traveled to a paid fitness center. And... This was a data analytics company that followed thousands of cell phones across two months in 2017. 
what they found was that cell phones, and we assumed the people holding them, that traveled 3.6 miles to go to the gym, to go to a paid fitness center, actually went there five times a month. So that's a pretty reasonable exercise habit. But when people were, and their cell phones, were traveling over five miles to get to the gym, they only went once a month on average. Wow. So that simple proximity, making things easy, is the difference between having an exercise habit and not. Is this the case for, for the home gym? It should be, shouldn't it? I know yeah. so many I mean, why would anyone people. go to the gym? Exactly. I know so many people who have bought fitness equipment and don't use it. And I think there's one other piece to that home gym question, which is we don't always buy the piece of equipment we like. And we don't always spend enough money on that home exercise thing to make it very enjoyable because if you buy cheap equipment, it's not much fun to use. Um, I, I have to admit, I did buy myself an elliptical, and I use it constantly. It's a reasonable quality one, and I knew before I bought it that the elliptical was the part of gym equipment I wanted to use. But getting yourself something that you don't want and putting it in your house and expecting proximity alone to work probably won't won't happen. But traveling to a fitness center where you have a whole array of things or traveling to a close fitness center or getting yourself a piece of equipment you really do like, those, those should work. Mm-hmm. So one of the places I think about habits a lot, obviously, is the workplace. And as an organizational psychologist, I get asked pretty frequently by leaders and managers how they can help their employees form more productive habits, how they can you know, get them focused on work as opposed to maybe hanging out too much on YouTube or social media. And I think one of my favorite studies I came across recently was uh, was Dylan Miner, who showed that if you ended up randomly sitting next to someone who was extremely productive, your productivity mm-hmm. spiked by about 10%. And oh, that made wonderful. me wonder if habits are, yeah, do you think maybe habits can be contagious um, is that affect, you know, people with maybe bad working habits picking up some of the good habits of their more productive peers? H- how do you think about habits spreading from one person to another in a work group? Well, I do think that the people around us either help us form good habits or um, keep us in our bad habits. Um, so it makes perfect sense to me that someone who you're working with if they have really good work habits, they're going to start cueing your work habits and perhaps help you learn to focus and concentrate in the same way and produce at the same high level. There are all these myths out there about how long it takes to form a new habit. Uh, Your lab has actually studied this. How long does it really take and what kinds of activities are faster and slower? So... When forming a habit, uh, what you're doing is you're essentially learning something. And it's just going to take longer to learn something that's complex than something that's simple. Uh, One of my colleagues actually did some research on this and concluded that 
two to three months is probably the minimum amount of time for a behavior to become really automated in the sense that it's your go-to thing that you do without having to think much about it. So two to three months is a lot longer than what most people think. Most people think eh, 21 days, we've all heard that. That's not true. There's not much evidence. There's no evidence behind that. It, that just seems like a, a workable amount of time, but it's not necessarily how long it's going to take you to form a habit. That's the bad news. There's some good news, though, that you, you can fall off the wagon and get back on, right? Yes. You can actually not do the new habit for a few days. And once you get back to it, your habit memory, because it changes so slowly, this is a very slow learning. I mean, two to three months is a lot of time. Slow learning kind of a, a mechanism. It's a slow learning memory system. When you get back to it, it's just about at the same level as it was when you left off. So you haven't hurt yourself if you quit for a short amount of time and then get back to it. And we all fall off the wagon, as you say, once in a while with our good habits that we're trying to form. So does that mean if, I, I feel like I know a lot of people who set New Year's resolutions, they keep them for all of January, then they, they slip up in February and they give up and they say, okay, I have to wait till next year to try again. Mm -hmm. They shouldn't give up? Yes, that's exactly what it means. It means they've done the first part, the most difficult part, because that's when they have to put in the most effort when they start. Each time you do it, it should get slightly easier incrementally easier, less thoughtful, less effortful. Those are only slight shifts each time, but what you're doing is you really, if you wait until next January, then you're back to where you were when you started, and you have to go through that effortful process again. Well, this has been fun as always. Thank you for joining us, and I can't wait to see what your next big idea is. I hope that I get to share it with you. If you have thoughts about Good Habits, Bad Habits, or any of the other books in our series, we'd love you to join the conversation at nextbigideaclub.com. Enter the promo code HABITS and we'll send you a free copy of Wendy Wood's Good Habits, Bad Habits, along with a regular supply of the most provocative new nonfiction curated by Adam Grant and other groundbreaking writers. That's nextbigideaclub.com slash podcast promo code habits. If you're listening on a smartphone, just tap or swipe over the cover art of this podcast. You'll find the episode notes and a link to the Next Big Idea Club. Special thanks this week to Wendy Wood. Her book, Good Habits, Bad Habits, The Science of Making Positive Changes That Stick is available wherever books are sold. Or you can get a copy for free when you join us at nextbigideaclub.com. Thanks also to Adam Grant, who conducted the interview. I'm your host, Rufus Griscom. This episode of The Next Big Idea was written by Maeve McGoran. Sound design was by Kyle Randall. Our associate producer is Caleb Bissinger. Series producers are Emma Cortland and Michael Kovnat. Our senior producer is Jonathan Miller. Executive producers are Stephanie Jens, Marshall Louie, and Hernan Lopez for Wondering.